You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. All right, if you've got a Bible, open up to Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, we're starting the book of Ephesians today, so we'll be in chapter 1, verse 1. Um, this week, I spent time in New York City, and so if I seem a little jittery, that's why. Um, New York's a scary place. Uh, I, got to, I had the honor of speaking at a conference there in Brooklyn, and um, I, I flew into LaGuardia and had to figure out how to get from LaGuardia to the Brooklyn Bridge where my hotel was, and um, I looked up an Uber, and it was over $100, so I was like, not doing that. And so I took a, a public bus to a train station, and I was trying to get on the subway, and I was trying to figure out how to get a Metro card, and I just looked like a redneck in New York, as you would imagine, and I'm trying to figure out, I'm talking to this machine, trying to get the machine to give me a Metro card with credit on it, and uh, an employee walks up to me, he's like, sir, are you having some trouble? And I'm like, yeah, I can't, I can't get my debit card to work. I think I have money on my debit card, but it seems like it's not working. And he's like, yeah, none of our uh, debit card machines are working right now. It's cash only. And I was like, oh, well, is there an ATM somewhere? He's like, nope. And so I'm, I'm just like, well, what am I supposed to do with like, you know, lost puppy eyes? And, and he looks at me and he says, listen, I don't know where you're from, but you're in New York now and, and you've got to survive. <laughs> so it's like, I just got there. And, um, and I was like, okay, like in a scared voice. And he says, uh, you, listen, you see that door behind me that I came out of? And uh, I'm like, yeah. And he says, I didn't close it behind me. And he looks at me and he goes, handle your business. And I don't know what that means in New York language, but to me, I was like, I think he wants me to go through that door. So, so I go through the door, and on the other side is the subway system. And so I was like, thank you, Jesus. But I don't know if I stole a subway ride from the city of New York, so I just need to get that off my chest today. Um, but I made it to my hotel for free. And so I'm in, I'm in the hotel, and, and I'm up on the 19th floor, and I go and I look at the window, and I'm looking out at the skyline, and I, and I Googled the population of New York City, over 8 million people, and I'm looking, and I'm like, most of these people don't know Jesus. And I see a city that's sprawling and so massive and huge, and it's, it's literally overwhelming and daunting when I think about the gospel need there. And, and I you know, had in my mind the, the book of Ephesians that Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. And I know that um, contextually, when Paul planted the church at Ephesus, he was stepping into what was one of the top three or four most influential cities in the world at that time. It was a strategic, strategically planted church. He stepped into Ephesus to impact not just the culture at Ephesus, but to impact the world that trade routes and, and sea routes and everything converged at Ephesus. And it was a, a place of darkness and a place of, of false goddess worship. They, they worshiped a goddess by the name of Diana in her temple that was one of the seven wonders of the world. And everything kind of converged on Ephesus. And Paul looked at Ephesus in the same way we would look at a place like New York City and say it's so dark. But instead of saying, I'm going to stay away from there, Paul said, we're going to plant a church there. And Paul went to Ephesus, we can read about it in Acts chapter 19, and he planted a church for God's glory there. And just, I want to read a few verses of him planting. In Acts 19 verse 8, it says, He entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. 
But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Um, that was a university in Ephesus. And what's interesting is you have uh, the Apostle Paul doing set up and tear down in a school, uh, much like many of our church plants uh, today start. And so he's meeting in the hall of Tyrannus, this university, as they uh, rent the space and, and, um, and have church there. And verse 10 of that passage says, This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That's a bold statement, but it's a statement in God's word, which means it's inerrant and authoritative and true. And so Luke records in the book of Acts that everyone in Asia heard the gospel of Jesus because of the ministry at the church at Ephesus. And actually, we know from continuing reading in Acts 19 and chapter 20 that, that Paul actually uh, stayed at Ephesus after he planted the church there for three years total. That culminated in a citywide riot. That when people came to know Jesus and stopped worshiping Diana, it put an economic strain on, on the merchants in the city who were selling things for idolatry worship. And, and as that happened, the whole city went into turmoil and a riot broke out and Paul's life was threatened. In Acts chapter 20, we see Paul leave to continue to plant other churches and equip pastors in other places and install elders. And he leaves in Acts 20 and he says goodbye to the other pastors of Ephesus uh, for the last time. He tells them, you'll never see my face again, most likely. And now we have this letter that we're going to begin today in chapter one of what we call Ephesians was a letter written from Paul eight years after he set sail from the shores of Ephesus. And eight years later, he finds himself in Rome as a prisoner. And as he writes a letter to the church that he planted and spent three years of his life in, in this kind of uh, city where all cultures and ethnicity had converged in this area and everyone had heard the gospel in Asia, Paul pours out one of the most beautiful letters that we have. The, the epistle of Ephesians can be read in 20 minutes. In case you're um, ever saying you don't have time to read the Bible, you can read the whole book that we're focusing on for the next six months. You can read it in 20 minutes. Um, it's three chapters of theology at the beginning. It's three chapters of life application at the end. And as we go through this as a church, over the next six months, we're going to take our time and move slowly. I'm only covering six verses today. And we're going to move through what we'll call six volumes in this sermon series and look at these different theological themes and in verse 1, Paul opens and he introduces himself. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul addresses the saints who are faithful, and he's going to spend the first three chapters explaining to them and to us how we became saints, what God did in this great work of redemption through the gospel. He uses the word hagios, which means saint or holy or one that is set apart. And if I would ask you, how do you become holy? I think the Lincoln County answer is like, don't, don't cuss uh, or, or drink or chew or hang out with girls that do, right? That was what we were taught. If we could keep those rules, then we'd be all right. Um, and, and if I were to ask you, or maybe even just the average person, how are we to be holy, our answers would center around things that we follow, things that we obey, or things that we do. But the biblical answer, Paul's answer, is not follow, obey, and do. His answer is receive. I believe Jesus' answer is receive holiness. 
That that in verse two, the very next word is grace. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, where, where all other worldviews and religions say do, 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 Christianity says done, done, done. It's accomplished, it's finished by our Lord and Savior Jesus. And that's what sets us apart as Christians from all other people in the world, is that our worldview and what we center ourselves on is not what we can achieve and be better and accomplish, but rather we have placed all of our hope and all of our trust in one who accomplished all things for us, and his name is Jesus. And so because of that, the the message that we cry out of holiness, that we want to be holy and we want to please our God, but it's not by us just working harder and being better and jumping higher, but it is about receiving grace and peace from God Almighty. And Paul's going to introduce us to this God. And he's going to place the Ephesians and us in this cosmic story of grace. and, And the question that we begin with today is, where did this all begin? How did this great story of grace start? Did it start when we were born? Did it start when we started going to church or when our parents took us or when we made a decision to be church-going people? Or did it start when we made a decision to become a Christian? No, Paul's going to make the argument that it started in eternity past with a God who has existed forever and exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in the next three Sundays, I'm going to preach one sentence in Greek. Verses 3 through 14 is one Greek sentence. It's like Paul began to write this letter, and he just couldn't bring himself to put a period on the parchment because he was so overflowing with worship of who God is as he explained it to people. And so today we're going to focus on the first person of the Trinity, the Father. I want to show you the Father's character, the Father's sovereign choice in eternity past, and the Father's cause and how he uh, chose the elect. We're going to look at that and kind of uh, um, un- unravel some of those deeper doctrines. Let's begin with the Father's character. Um, you see, the Father, I-, I mentioned him as the first person of the Trinity. The Trinity is something that's very difficult to understand, um, hard to wrap our minds around, but we worship one God in three persons. We don't worship three gods. We worship one. It is very clear throughout the Bible that God is one, yet he reveals himself to us as three distinct persons within that one. Um, When the word God is used, it's most often referring to the Father, but it can also refer to the Godhead, which would be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three in one. And many people have tried to come up with analogies to try to explain the Trinity. It's it's all well-meaning, but at some point it all falls short. I've heard people compare God to an egg, like how an egg has yolk and egg white and shell, three parts, and all of it is an egg. Well, that's a heresy known as partialism. That Jesus is not part of God, the Father is not one-third God, the Spirit is not another part of God, that's partialism. That's not how God has revealed himself. They're all fully God. Um, We've heard people try to describe it as water, and um, you have water in a liquid state or a solid state or a gaseous state, and um, they change forms. Well, that's another heresy called modalism. That's been taught and it's wrong that that God, uh, I mean, it's, it's a teaching that says that God existed in the beginning as father and then he morphed or changed into the son while he was on earth. And then after the son rose from the dead, then he changed into the spirit. And that's the God that we have with us today. No, they all three exist forever together. Um, And and so you have this beautiful picture that we kind of grasp as humans to wrap our minds around and we can't. 
There's no fitting analogy, but God himself has given us a fitting analogy in what he has revealed himself as, Father, Son, and Spirit. So when I say God the Father, I don't mean that God is literally a Father of Jesus the Son in the fact that he has, he has created him. It is, it is a heretical thought to think that the Father created the Son. The Son has always been the Son, and Jesus has always been with the Father. It's easy to think eternity future. We're going to be in heaven forever one day. It's hard for us to think in eternity past, that, that they've always existed together in this union. And so God gives us a descriptor of himself. And the first descriptor he gives us is Father, to show his character, but he's not like your earthly father. He's a perfect father. We, we, we tend to hold the standards or, sadly, the failures of our earthly father up to our heavenly father. But in our heavenly father, in God, we see the perfection of what a father should be. Verse 3 begins with him, and Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Blessed be the Father who blesses us. It's essentially what Paul's saying. There's lots of blessing going on, and we don't even quite know what blessing means. When I was a kid growing up in church, when old ladies would say, bless her heart, it was in reference to someone who couldn't sing very good. All right? When someone would get up and sing a special, and it was terrible, they'd say, bless her heart. Bless them, Lord. That was like... I don't know what this blessing is, except an indicator that you're bad. Um, and we, you know, we say a blessing on our food. We bless people who sneeze, which is weird. We bless the rains down in Africa. We bless a lot of things. But um, you know, I think sometimes we're not quite sure what this blessing is. And in Greek, it means to ascribe glory to. And this should just bring a lot of weight to verse 3 as you think about it. When Paul's writing, he's saying, we ascribe glory to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I can wrap my head around that, but then the next clause I really struggle with, and it says, who has ascribed glory to us in Christ? We bless him, but he also blesses us. And so I hope you're asking, well, how does God bless us? Let me make it clear. God doesn't bless us with perks and merch and swag and health and wealth. God blesses us with the glory that he lavishes upon his son, Jesus. He blesses us, it says, in Christ. He blesses us, it says, with every spiritual blessing. Y'all know good dads bless their kids, right? Good granddads ruin their grandchildren. <laughs> they spoil them. That's what pawpaws do. Amen, pawpaws? Um, but sometimes as Christians, we fall prey to treating our heavenly father like a heavenly grandfather. Like when, when my kids want something and they ask for it and I remind them that their dad is a pastor and so we don't have money to buy those things, usually the next thing they say is, well, I'll talk to Granny and Tumazi about it. Because <laughs> they know grandparents will ruin them. Well, we come to the father and treat him like a heavenly pawpaw and we, want, we expect God to lavish on us not just blessings, glory, and spiritual realities, but we come to him for all the stuff that we want. You see, God's purpose is not to give you everything you want, but everything that you should want. His purpose is to reorient your desires to the, to the point that you actually want the things that the Father wants for you. You see, this means that the main glory of God is in his Son, Jesus. It's wrapped up 
in the Son, of which we are benefactors. His perfect, fully God, eternal Son. And the Father's character, who He is, was to beam with pride as He blesses His Son and thereby those who are adopted into the family of His Son too. We, uh, we not me, I wasn't on the team at NASA, but we as human beings just sent a telescope into space. And you guys that know me well know that I'm a space nerd, um, and I've been kind of nerding out on the web telescope images and things from that. And as we have got images further and further out from planet Earth, we have seen more and more and more of the heavens declaring the glory of God. And theologically, when I look at the eternal existence of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, even before those things were created, I know that the Father created those things for the glory of His Son through the Spirit. That, that we, we are getting to just look at, peer into, small, in a small way, the relationship of the Trinity. It's a beautiful thing, and you see the character of the Father, and then we become benefactors of that by spiritual adoption. Let's continue on and look at the second thing, which is the Father's choice. Paul leads out with this mind-blowing doctrine of election and predestination, and as I say those words, there, I, I guarantee you there are some of you who get uncomfortable so buckle up. Uh, we're going to deal with those things. First, let me say, those are Bible words. Those are God's words. We like to skip over things like predestination because our human logic and reason have trouble, um, have trouble grasping them. But they're words that God has given us in his perfect Bible. And so when we come to these things, we need not shy back or be afraid of them, but rather we need to peer into the glories of the God that we worship and become deeper worshipers because of it. You guys remember, those of you that are parents, do you remember before you were parents and how you dreamed of becoming parents? And then you had kids and you're like, what have we done, <laughs> right? Um, I, I, can, I can remember when I was engaged to Amanda and we began to dream and talk about what our family would one day look like. And the conversation came up, how many kids do we wanna have? And I was like, well, I'd be happy with two, you know? And Amanda, was, she wanted 10. And I was like, oh, Jesus, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> right? And um, so we compromised at five. Um, but, but as we dreamt of that, I remember dreaming of being able to play catch with my kids one day or um, see them make art and, and be creative and, and, and see as they, as they grow and develop and become adults. I, I remember like, thinking of those things before I'd even met my kids. And, and, and thinking and imagining what that would be like. And, and so as humans, we imperfectly dream of what the future will be like, what our children will be like. But God is not like that. God is not like us. He's so much higher and so much more perfect than us that he didn't just dream of the future. He planned the future, who his children would be. What that means for you, if you're a Christian, is that, is that you have not ascribed to a religion of a God who was simply hopeful but rather a God that has always been sovereign in his plan. You don't worship a God who in eternity past was like, I'm going to make some people and, oh, I just hope that they like me. <laughs> right? No, you serve a God who knew you before you were formed in your mother's womb. And he has drawn you in to his family. Verse 4 says, even as he chose us, chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy 
and blameless before him. So why did he choose us? Gives us the purpose so that we would be holy and blameless before him. Why? Why is that a good thing? For the glory of God, for the glory of his son. It is, it is glorious to our creator to become like our creator. Now, some would say that in God's choosing, that God chose everyone. And some people, even though they were chosen, just walked away from it. Now, that sounds nice at first, and that sounds like a logical way to reason through this, but there's some biblical and, I think, logical problems with that. What about the reprobate who goes to hell for eternity? Let's just be honest. Hell is a real place, and people who reject Jesus are going to be punished in hell forever. If that's the case, does God not get his way with those people? Not only does that conclusion not make sense rationally, but it's definitely not biblical. The Bible says that God is glorified in the destruction of the wicked. John 10 talks about us coming into the family of God and Jesus speaking. And John 10 says that he will give us eternal life. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. And he references where these sheep are from. He says, my father who has given them to me. That, that we were chosen and, and set aside and given to the Son as a trophy of grace, who is given to, them, to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Jesus prays in the, in, um, in the high priestly prayer, he prays for those who will believe. He doesn't pray that people will believe eventually. He prays for those who will believe. In John 17, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, in this family, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You see, the Father's plan is to invite us into the beauty of who he is. God very clearly in the Bible seems to know who will come to him. The Bible calls them the elect. In the Old Testament, it's very clear there is an elect nation called Israel. And we see that not everyone who was an Israelite was actually spiritually a part of God's family. And as uh, revelation comes forward and is progressively revealed, God uh, peels back the curtain even more to show that his plan was always to draw people from all nations, tribes, and tongues to himself. And they're continually over and over and over again called the chosen, called the elect, called those who are predestined, those that he chose. And so this doesn't mean that God fails when someone goes to hell. And I think when we look at this, let's just be honest, it's uncomfortable, isn't it? It's uncomfortable to think that there are people that are not elect. It's uncomfortable to think there are people who are not chosen before the foundations of the world. I just want to resonate with that. That's uncomfortable for me too. And my prayer is that my whole life it will be uncomfortable to me. And if it's uncomfortable to me, what it drives me to is to preach the message of the gospel to everyone in fervent evangelism because I don't know who is elect and who's not. And if God somehow showed us who was and who wasn't, then we would be selfish with the gospel that's been given to us. And he's called us to preach the gospel to every person. And so we should not come to God and say, why didn't you choose everyone? We should come to God and say, why did you choose anyone at all? Not, why would you not choose everyone, God, but why would you choose me? 
I've sinned against your holy name. I have been wholeheartedly depraved my entire life. Why in the world, God, would you want me to be in your family? And it leads us to praise him. The end of verse 4 has a clause that says, in love. Why? Because God loves you. His great love for you has led him to draw you into this family. The, that, that phrase, in love, really, in Greek, it should be connected with verse 5 a little bit more accurately. So it's one sentence, the end of verse 4, end of verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Another uncomfortable word there, amen? He predestined us. Um, the reason we don't like that is we don't like people making decisions for us, do we? Um, I'll prove it to you. Sometimes when our checking account's a little bit low and we go out to dinner, because it's not like drastically low, but it's low enough that you know, we want to go to dinner but still save some money and have it both ways, we'll do this trick, because restaurants make a killing off of you on drinks. And so we'll say, hey, I'll tell the waitress, hey, we'll have seven waters. And when I do that, my kids are like, they're looking up on their phones the number for CPS. They're like, how dare you choose water for us, right? It's like, who do you think you are to choose my drink and choose water, right? We, we don't like it when, when a choice is made for us. We want to we be involved. We want to have our input and our opinion. But the reality is when it comes to salvation, your input has damned you. Your opinion sends you straight to hell. You had a choice, and your choice was to run away from God. Everyone has a choice. Everyone has a free will. And we all use our free will to walk completely away from the love that God has shown us. 100% of us. Everyone does it. We've all made the wrong choice. And so salvation is not us man, coming to our senses. Oh, I've really messed up. I need to come back and repent of this. Salvation is God intervening in our lives to get our attention. There's two views of salvation, synergistic salvation and monergistic synergy, meaning working together. There's one view that, that, that God has kind of offered it and then mankind meets God halfway with our repentance and things and that's how we're saved. I would hold to a monergistic view of salvation, meaning that when I get to heaven, it's all because Jesus got my attention. The Bible described me before I became a Christian as dead in my trespasses and sins. Dead people don't do much. They certainly don't make good decisions. We needed someone to come and make us alive before we could even see what decision and what direction we needed to go in. You see, in heaven, you're not going to celebrate your good decision. You're going to celebrate your Savior who accomplished everything for you. It's not for you to be proud that I'm glad I made it to heaven because I made a better decision than everybody who didn't make it, but rather I'll throw my crown at Jesus' feet and say thank you for intervening when I was on my way to hell because there is no chance I would have made it here without you. But man, it feels like we've done something, doesn't it? Feels like we've made a good decision. And, and listen, in some sense we have. If you say, you Jeep people, anybody drive a Jeep? You're in a cult, right? Um, it's, it's like an okay cult though, it's not a real dangerous one. But um, I saw a, a video of a Jeep guy and he put his Jeep in a ditch and then he let his kid who had a Jeep like power wheels, y'all seen this video? 
He let his kid pull him out of the ditch. And so they ratchet strapped the power wheels to the real Jeep with big mud tires on it. And the power wheels is going to pull the real Jeep out of the ditch. So that little toddler kid gets in there and fires it up, man. Them wheels start spinning. And the Jeep comes right out of the ditch. Well, if any of you guys just can't figure out what happened, the guy in the real Jeep hits the gas. And that kid is so proud. Like, I pulled dad out of the ditch. That's kind of how we Christians are. It's like, yeah, I've done something good, and I've really made a good call here. And then eventually in our Christian walk, we read Ephesians 1 and say, God predestined it all along. We're like, oh, God's foot was on the gas through this. Jesus said in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. You see, the reality is we would have no inkling to turn to God if he weren't drawing us the entire way. That the circumstances of when we were born, where we were born, the job we have, the hobbies we have, that the whole thing is rigged for God's glory in his Son for eternity, that we would sing his praises and be deep and fruitful worshipers of him. And what's the fruit of this redemption? Adoption. Most of y'all know my family's been deeply impacted by adoption. The craziest thing I learned through our story of fostering and adopting kids is that adoption is the only legal action in our society that changes the past. You know, Timon and Pumbaa taught us Hakuna Matata. It's in the past. You can't change it. You can't do anything about it except in adoption. My kids' birth certificates have mine and Amanda's name on them just as if we stood in the hospital the day they were born. You see, adoption spiritually changes some things. My kids didn't ask to be adopted. They didn't get on a, uh, a you know, they didn't get on Facebook and look for the most attractive and financially responsible family that they wanted to be adopted into. Matter of fact, some days they probably wish they would have landed somewhere else. But the reality is they have found two people that love them sacrificially and pray that we will have that love reciprocated for our whole lives. And my adopted kids receive all the same love and benefits that biological kids receive. There's no difference in my heart. There's no difference in practicality. And I want you to see what the Heavenly Father has done for you. When we zoom in with the Webb telescope and see all the glory that the Father has sent out into into light years, into space, to shine upon his boy, to bring glory into relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit, he has adopted you into that. And adoption means that you get the same benefit as the only begotten. This means the inheritance, the blessing, the joy of the Son Jesus now belongs to adopted sons and daughters in the kingdom of the Father. Uh, Now belongs to princes and princesses in the Father's kingdom. We've been chosen, we've been found, we've been loved, we've been adopted by the best Father to the praise of his glorious grace. And I don't know about you, but when I read of this deep theology, it can just cause my brain to crumble up and say, I'm done for the day. But it definitely leads me to say, why? Why was I chosen? Let's look at the Father's cause. And I hope it's led you to this point where you're thinking, why did God do it this way? I think Paul anticipates that question. You guys remember asking your parents why when you were kids? What'd they say? Because I said so. Every dang time that we asked why, our parents said, because I said so. 
And I would get so mad and I would swear to myself and God in heaven that when I'm a dad, I will never say that to my kids until they ask me why. And I say, because I said so, because I'm your dad. Let me warn you, you're not going to like God's answer very much if you're asking why. Verse 5 says, according to the purpose of his will. This is a cosmic because I said so. And it's okay if you don't like it, right? It's okay to be uncomfortable with it. It's okay to not like it. Just like a, a, a child can't fathom the reasons for the decisions that a parent that, who loves them and blesses them makes, uh, it is not on us to understand God's, God's sovereign will, his, his glorious purpose. It is not on us to decipher and figure all that out. But I do know that he's good, and I do know that his purpose is good, and I do trust that the Father who's adopted me in love knows what he's doing. And the desire that we have as parents for our kids to trust us when we just say, because I said so, the Father's pleading with you to trust him and still open your mouth and proclaim the gospel to elect and non-elect because he said so. Because his plan is good. Because he loves you. Ephesians 2.9 tells us that our salvation is not a result of works so that no one may boast. That we want, we should begin, the more mature we are in Christ, we should begin to want the glory of our salvation to be for God alone. Not so we can be holier than those who have not come to Christ yet. And if we knew the, the basis of God's decision, we'd try to steal the choice away from him. We'd try to control it. If we could somehow know how God chose the elect, we wouldn't open our mouths and speak to anyone who we viewed as non-elect or not worthy to come to where we've come to. And what we need to be reminded of is that none of us are worthy. We're in a room of jacked up, unworthy sinners. You don't deserve what you've been given. And the people you've been called to speak that to don't deserve it either. Yet you open your mouth because you have been given grace and you carry grace. Everyone's invited to repentance. It's an all-call invitation. The doctrine of election does not negate the fact that everyone is invited to come and repent of their sins and trust in Jesus and be saved. And you think, how can those two things both be true? Because the Bible says so. Don't lean on your logic and reasoning. Lean on what your father has said, and he has said both are true. Listen, I remember very clearly when, when Bella, my, my oldest, when she was young, she was about three, I think, when this happened, and I used this as sermon illustration many times through the years. She was on this tricycle that my parents probably bought for her and spoiled her with, and she, we were at my parents' house, and she was on this tricycle, and she was riding. It's a very gradual slope at their home, but they have like a concrete driveway, and she was riding on that tricycle, and she was so proud. She pedaled uphill to her dad, and she got to me, and she took her feet off the pedals and started to roll backwards. And she was rolling backwards and there's like a drop off at the end and she kind of just was headed toward that drop off and I was like, Bella, you need to stop. And I'm kind of awkwardly chasing after her, but gravity's pulling her and she's picking up speed and I'm like, Bella, you need to put your feet down. And she just keeps staring at me. It's like, do you understand what I'm, what I'm screaming at you? Put your feet down and stop the tricycle. And she just doesn't. She just don't put her feet down and eventually she just goes over the edge. I run to her and she's scraped herself up and got blood running and all that and she's crying and scared and I scoop her up as a good father does and I say, why'd you do that? That's a picture of the whole world. 
The father screaming repentance at everyone as they just roll straight to hell without care for what they're doing with their lives. And all of us have rolled over that edge and we need someone to sovereignly come in and pick us up. Here's my confidence, maybe arrogance, but I'm gonna go with confidence, is that when someone comes into my life, here's what I do, I just assume that they've been chosen before the foundations of the world. And I think I probably wouldn't, wouldn't be talking to them if they weren't. God made sure you ended up at my annoying self <laughs> so that I could tell you about the love of Jesus. And I could call you to, like, I don't go and be like, you ever think that maybe you were chosen before the foundation of the world? No, I say, Jesus died on a cross and you can get eternal life by repenting of your sin and trusting in that. Do you want in on that? It's good news. I just think, man, some of these people in my life, they love Jesus. They just ain't figured it out yet. <laughs> verse five says, according to the purpose of his will. And then verse 6 says, why? To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us. There's that word again. Assigned and ascribed glory to us in the beloved, his son, who we'll talk more about next week. You see, all of redemption is for God's glory. And I know that this is mind stretching and hard to wrap your head around. And maybe you're sitting there thinking, okay, Will, I'm hearing you. But so if God has always existed, always will exist, and he creates and he chooses beforehand people who will exist with him forever in heaven, and that's already taken place, well, how do I know if I'm on that list? That's the million-dollar question, isn't it? How do I know if I'm on that list that before I was ever even a thought in my parents' mind, how do I know that he had chosen me? Let me put it to you this way. People who are not elect and chosen don't ask those kinds of questions. And if you're sitting there thinking, man, what's God doing in my life? Let me tell you very clearly what you ought to do. Repent of your sin and base your whole life on the truth of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And if you do that and you don't understand how you were chosen before the foundations of the world, and you don't understand how things are going to go the rest of your life or into eternity... It's fine. You follow Jesus. Verse 13 tells us this. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Did you catch that clause in that verse? When you believed in him. You see, that's an action of placing trust and repentance in Jesus Christ. You see, the end of this long Greek sentence tells us that we really do have a responsibility that we really do have a call to response and action, that we place our trust in Jesus. And how those two things are reconciled is difficult, I understand. Charles Spurgeon, the famous British preacher, once was asked, Spurgeon, listen, how do you reconcile God's sovereign predestination and man's responsibility to repent? And his answer was, I don't seek to reconcile friends. Those things are both true, and if we don't understand how they work together, it's okay because our Father does. And if you're pondering these things, it's evidence that the Spirit is drawing you into these things. If you've been a Christian a long time, and this is stretching your mind, it's the Spirit drawing you in to know Him in a deeper way. If you've never repented of your sin and you don't like this because someone's made an order for you and made a decision for you, let me just tell you, this is good news for you because the Father is drawing you in and adopting you into a family you can never earn on your own. If you're pondering these things, commit to these things. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. 
To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.